If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrive, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and the fact that getting and providing and building the value of your organization and your offer to customers reaches deeper into your organization than you might have thought. Today, I have Denise Meredith. Uh, Denise is a lifelong leader. Uh, She has led entire organizations, uh, the Bureau of Land Management, what was it? A hundred thousand people and then a billion dollar budget. Well, we had uh, now we only had ten thousand, but a billion dollar budget. <laughs> okay. Um, so Denise, welcome. Thank you. So glad uh, to be here. So Mark. Denise has a career as a public servant and as a leader, and now she's kind of the driver of the world's best connectors, which is an organization that kind of brokers resources for its members. Hey, one member needs this. She knows. Uh, Denise knows who can help you get that or somebody in the in the organization. Really cool organization. So I'm thrilled to have you, Denise. Glad to be here, Mark. Cool. So Denise um, and I kind of have run in the same circles. I I watched, I read her book that she gave me, um, Chilling, Thoughts While Thoughts, Chilling. Thoughts While Chilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is about her experience coming up and being uh, a minority in a very um, majority dominated department of a government that is um, at the time was not particularly charged with um, um, being sensitive to that kind of stuff. Exactly. So uh, a groundbreaker through your entire life. So give us a little bit more about you and uh, what makes Denise, Denise, and some of the experiences that have shaped your perspectives today. Okay, thanks, Mark. Really appreciate the invitation here. Yeah, I was uh, born in Brooklyn, <laughs> as so many people are. Uh, my parents migrated to Queens, which in, was, then was the wilderness <laughs> of uh, New York City. And um, so I grew up in Queens. My, I think everybody's foundation is their parents and it could be a good foundation or a not too good foundation. My, it was very fortunate. My parents are really groundbreakers themselves. My dad was sort of a Renaissance man. He uh, was a photographer, played amateur tennis, was a veteran in the army, conductor in the Air Force, carpenter, you name it. <laughs> he did quite a few things that black people weren't supposed to do at that time. And my mother was a community organizer. So PTA, church, whatever. She was in charge. So you put those two together and you get me, who is a, a multitasker. Before that was invented, that word was invented. I um, went to Cornell, wanted to be a veterinarian, discovered a lot of my career was geared by what 
black people were not allowed to do um, in uh, the past century. So I want to be a veterinarian, got up to Cornell, discovered they didn't, weren't letting women be vets. And I thought, well, okay, I didn't know that. And they were only letting one person, one woman a, a year into the vet school. Of course, timing is everything. Now that's and, completely And reversed. that one woman wasn't a black woman. Oh, you knew, I knew that wasn't <laughs> going to happen. So um, there was really no way. There were so many, I can't even describe the number of obstacles. You might try to go this way. No, nope, can't do it. <laughs> so anyway, I uh, switched to wildlife biology and they didn't have any women either, but they didn't say they didn't want any. So that's a big difference. And so uh, three of us graduated with degrees in wildlife. Three women graduated with degrees in wildlife. Two of those were African-American women, which was really uh, different. So I actually got a job as wildlife biologist two weeks after I graduated, as you mentioned, Bureau of Land Management. Um, I thought about naming my book 5,000 Cowboys and Me because that's what it seemed like at the time. It was about 5,000 employees, very small agency at the time. I was the uh, second African-American I ever had. I was the first woman that they ever hired. So it was uh, pretty exciting. Uh, my first job was in Las Vegas of all places. A lot of wildlife out there at that time, but uh, in many ways, but exactly, I, I had uh, 10 million acres to play with because nobody had wildlife biologists either. So it was fun, learned a lot. And I started to move back and forth across the country. I've lived and worked in six different states, which to me is exciting. I enjoyed doing that, enjoying meeting new people, new challenges and worked my way up. Slowly, it seemed. <laughs> People, you know, they talk about overnight successes and all of that, but nah, it's not, it doesn't always work that way. So I eventually, however, in the Clinton administration, became deputy of an entire agency. So that's when I had the 10,000 employees. So we're always a small, get it done kind of agency. But uh, we had a billion dollar budget to work with and 200 offices. So that was a lot of fun for a couple of years. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, politics is politics, what could I say? Um, was nowhere as near as bad as it is now, but you can see it starting to turn with the rule that there being no rules. <laughs> like I was gonna say rules being broken, but it's gonna, gonna, gonna be actually no rules. And uh, to me, a loss of interest in serving the people and more self-interest and making, um, keeping a salary. <laughs> yeah. Keeping your house, nice house in DC, uh, <laughs> those types of things. So I'm also, as you know, Mark, I'm a results oriented person. I like a return on investment. Washington is not a results uh, mindset. That's not what it was designed for. It was designed to discuss and debate. <laughs> um, you don't usually get to make anything. You might make the decisions and they're not even doing that these days, but you really don't get to do things. And I like to do things, I'm project oriented. So after a couple of years of totally reactive uh, behavior there, I decided to go back out in the field and came here to Arizona. I had a choice of here in California and I love California too, but Arizona, Bruce Babbitt, uh, people here may remember him, <laughs> the former governor. I was working for Bruce in D.C. and he said, uh, Denise, they need some change agents out in Arizona. So he was very happy that I would come out here. And the big change I made here was uh, sort of different. It was recreation <laughs> and tourism. They had the five C's here. They had cattle and citrus and cotton, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, but uh, Bruce and I agreed those were sort of dying out on their own, <laughs> it was nobody killing them with this cattle 
ranching, cattle was starting to come from Mexico, all the places. Uh, copper was going pretty much downhill as an industry. Uh, Arizona needed something else. And what they have, as we all enjoy, the reason that we're here is beautiful climate and uh, just beautiful landscape. So I worked on recreation when I moved here. I asked people where they went camping. And most people said, oh, California, Utah. <laughs> Everybody named every state except Arizona. And things were in pretty bad shape here. The state didn't have any money, so they weren't maintaining campgrounds. Um, a lot of gang activity at time. At that time, drugs and gangs hanging out at the uh, rest stops and things like that. So we sort of took charge and um, really renovated campgrounds, put new ones in, put in new outhouses. So uh, essentially, to me, I thought the biggest challenge here was something new besides the five C's that we had. I supported those industries, cattle and agriculture, et cetera. Those are important. They're basic industries, they're traditional industries, uh, copper, but we needed some more <laughs> input here as far as um, revenue. So focused on recreation because it's a beautiful climate here, obviously, and we have a lot to work with as far as natural resources, designated for, nas for national monuments here. We renovated, with the help of the military, we uh, renovated a lot of campgrounds and outhouses, visitor centers, et cetera. They were very helpful during that time period. And the result, I think, is uh, just a higher level of recreation. Now people can go camping here safely. People do come here, tourists, things like Sierra Vista uh, became a birding area, international birding area. Yeah. Uh, during my stay. And now people come from all over the world to help that economy. I'm all about economic development. Obviously, I like the environment. I like animals. I like wildlife. That's what I taught. I was taught and that's what I grew up with. But at the same, I think we can have both economic development and a safe environment. Yeah. So saying, saying stewardship was my theme when I was the director here for seven years. Okay. And that worked really well. Cool. So through all that experience, you've developed a couple passions. Uh, one is uh, as being plugged into uh, the economy, uh, plugged into Arizona, um, using your role as one to foster economic development from the Department of the Interior. Um, also leadership. Um, also, you've been sensitized to diversity in the workplace. And um, so we, we can talk about all of those. You know, this is the Value Clarity Podcast. And I'm passionate about uh, making sure that people know that diverse organizations are more likely to understand their customers and their world. They get diverse. It's not diversity of people, diversity of checkboxes, diversity of color. It's diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of thought processes, diversity of perspectives that give better results to their, to their customers and their clients. So that's, that's one thing that you're passionate about and you've got a couple programs. So tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things you're doing in that area. Okay, um, uh, about four years ago, obviously I've always been interested in diversity and throughout my career, in the federal government. I never had a problem having a diverse workforce. People said they can't find anybody. 
I don't know. They're pretty much out there. <laughs> it doesn't take much to find talented people of all types if you're open to it. So I always had very diverse uh, workforce. I carried that over to private industry and tried to help others see the benefit of that. There have been studies, um, <laughs> there are statistics about uh, diverse workforces being more profitable. I learned a lot myself. Uh, one of my special assignments I had early on was with uh, Hewlett Packard. And this was back in the old days when they were both still alive and active, Hewlett and Packard. So I was there for three months helping them with performance evaluations because the Bureau was known for having outstanding performance evaluations. As I mentioned, we're a small agency, but we accomplished so much. <laughs> People wanted to know, how do you do that? So I uh, went to Hewlett Packard, which of course was a very successful company, but <laughs> it was starting to show it was the dot-com era when everybody could do whatever they wanted to. And they discovered uh, that doesn't work for the long run <laughs> as far as making profits and letting everybody do what they want to do when they came to work. So they needed some type of evaluation, uh, accountability. So I helped them with that. But their slogan at the time, people probably don't remember this back from the 90s, was diversity is our competitive edge. Nobody had even heard of that word, diversity, in that context. That was brand new. And what I saw from them is how they used a diversity effectively to become, at that time, one of the top um, IT companies in the world. Wow. And so I sort of learned a lot there. Also learned to be more tolerant of different types of people. It was all engineers. <laughs> okay. People have a, and I had a mindset about engineers, yeah. <laughs> what they look like, what they did, how they thought. <laughs> and you go there and you see all these different kinds of engineers. And not only that, the uh, head personnel, for everybody was an engineer. So even the head personnel person was an engineer, but was super talented, obviously. Uh, they had an amazing retention rate amazing recruitment success. And I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> I have to be more open and tolerant of different types of people and what their skill sets are. So I've carried that through helping other organizations. Believe it or not, the city of Avondale hired me one time to help them with the police departments and the fire departments for both solid white male, <laughs> which was pretty hard to believe, you know, even at that time. <laughs> so. Yeah. And uh, so we were, well, we looked at exactly how, well, how do you hire people? Well, we ask for references from the people who are here. <laughs> I'm going, well, I guess you keep getting <laughs> then what you've started. So we worked on recruitment, how you do recruitment. And, uh, and I still remember to this day when they sent me the email, oh, we got our first diverse person, an Asian American male. <laughs> I'll still remember that. They were so excited <laughs> that they got somebody different there. <laughs> well, so, you know, baby steps. Yeah, so, so they went on to do uh, things. So yeah. I did a lot with City of Phoenix, with the different cities here, um, with private industry, with pushing that along. Four years ago, I decided to clone myself, um, start an organization called World's Best Connectors, Like-Minded People. And we have been, that is not our main, our main goal is economic development and growing businesses in Arizona, but to grow businesses, you need to understand diversity, <laughs> particularly in Arizona. So that's one of the components that we work on. We had a conference last October called um, Diversifying Tech Leadership. And even the title upset some people. Why are you talking about diversity? <laughs> Uh, well, people who say that need to learn about diversity, I guess. <laughs> if you have to ask, you need to come. <laughs> if you have that. to ask, yeah. So 
anyway, we had a uh, with COVID, of course, it was reduced to who we could have in person. We had 50 people in person uh, and everybody else on Zoom. But what we talked about was not just, well, one, tech is not even hiring people to tech, period. <laughs> so the, the statistics are dismal as far as people of color, LBGQT, women, you name it. <laughs> Terrible statistics. So we want... Um, but not only look at bringing people in, and there are a lot of talented people, STEM and STEAM programs have been around for 20 years. <laughs> so there must be people that have been trained. But yeah, you know, Denise, I'm, you know, I went and there's a cycle of failure to higher diversity. Mm-hmm. And you to to win, hear me out here. This is Mark Brownie's sure. theory, and tell me if I'm Okay. Uh, if I've got it right or if I'm sure. way off base. Okay. If you just try to hire slots, but you don't have a culture of listening to those people, encouraging them, coaching them, mentoring them, uh, listening to them, engaging them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those people are going to leave in a hurry because they know that they aren't welcome. And so you're always, you're kind of filling a leaky bucket and you aren't taking advantage of those diverse people that you've got in. You've got to have a culture of wanting to take advantage of that diversity of thought, of backgrounds, of of perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, the, the thing implodes. Right. And uh, a lot of people look at it too simply. If, um, so everybody went out the past two years and hired a DEI person, <laughs> uh, which is fine. <laughs> okay. That might be a start. But to me, the bigger, almost as big an issue as recruitment is retention. So you're right on. Um, you can hire somebody <laughs> and they can be gone in six months, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and you're no further along except saying, you see, we tried and it didn't work. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I, I heard a, somebody, a friend of mine quoted some, uh, a statistic from SHRM, the society of human relation managers. Mm -hmm. And, um, they said that to replace an employee is two to three times the base salary, except technology sales and executives. And it can be as high as 10 times the base salary. Mm-hmm. So think of during the times of the big quit, the great resignation, mm-hmm. and you're trying to retain every one of those engineers that costs a huge amount of sum. And of course, the cost that 10 times cost is the cost of projects delayed, of customers disappointed, of revenue not earned because projects got delayed. And so it's really important for a corporate leader to understand the strategic impact of closing that loop of not just hiring, but of retaining, of uh, creating a culture. And so that's another one of your passions, right? Yep, yeah, it's it's a lot of it, yes. Because, yeah, it's like building a nest. (laughs) The nest has to be comfortable if you expect people to stay for. The studies have even shown as far as women on boards, and that's one of my pet peeves. There aren't any, but anyway, women on boards, that is not just one, one woman does not work. <laughs> Studies have shown two women does not work. That takes three women on a board before things start really start to change because the first two are ignored, <laughs> are harassed, are whatever, <laughs> and leave. Yeah, they'll leave pretty quick. Wow. And you not get the impact you want. It takes three women 
one in a way to support each other, but also to back up each other. I used to do a skit about having meetings, <laughs> which was pretty interesting the way meetings are run and whatever. And what the tendency is women say something and not until another guy later says supports that <laughs> or repeats and it has it as their idea yeah it does and if um i was lucky enough to have helpers you can have a helper in the room which is a guy and they say hey didn't denise just say that <laughs> that's very helpful okay <laughs> but you don't always have that right yeah um so you need so it's uh, yeah but to me it's from the top and that's why i really push on that people uh push from the bottom, that's fine. There are plenty of organizations doing that. We don't do that, we push from the top. Because if a CEO wants something, <laughs> guess what? It usually happens uh, because it's reflected in the employee evaluations. It's reflected in the bonuses. It's inflected, reflected in the incentives. It's reflected in you keeping the job and moving up in your job as a white male. <laughs> this is yeah. something the boss thinks is important. Hey, I better think it's important too. And, um, the organizations they get it get it we had two winners we had a contest last year too on is diversity your competitive edge and we had a corp big corporation bitwise industries it's nationwide one for corporations um they go into underserved communities build their office take their office there and usually take over something that's not working <laughs> some building and renovate it and hire people train them but more importantly place them <laughs> So they won and they've been very effective. They have a woman and a male co-lead, co-CEOs, which is really unusual. And then the other winner was uh, compliance testing. They're here in Mesa. And again, just it's just the attitude that they have <laughs> reflected in the demographics of their company, reflected in their profits. Yeah. And, and to me, it's all about uh, but, you know, like it or not, it's about profit making people go into business to make money. And I feel if you can show them that you can make more money with diversity. The other reason for diversity is your market. Yep. Who are you selling to? Who's out there to buy your product? Yeah, It's changed and it's probably changed since the last time you looked at it. And um, so if you want to attract, and obviously we see all the mistakes in marketing, <laughs> you can tell the companies that didn't have any Latinx people or <laughs> didn't have any women <laughs> when they put that commercial out. <laughs> That's right. It had even one person could have yeah. told them that's a bad idea. Yeah. I um, real good friend, Christine Gilroy, she was vice has been a vice president of sales at a bunch of technology companies. And uh, she's been very frustrated over a couple of years about how few, how non-diverse technology, like software, SaaS software companies, sales forces are. And um, she really believes that that is affecting their ability, these companies' ability to sell. Uh, when your sales force doesn't look like your customer mix, um, it, it shows in a million little subtle ways. And so um, you know, that what I dislike about DEI is it's become such shorthand. It's an acronym, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And even if you, you expand it to the words, uh, we treat it as a checkbox exercise and, Definitely. um, it's gotta be a culture exercise mm -hmm. or don't bother almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think DEI people come into it 
a lot of them um, optimistic <laughs> about dedicated, committed to what they're going to do. But <laughs> if your organization is not, yeah, you can you'll be there and be frustrated and yeah, if, you're C- yeah, <laughs> if, you're C- if it doesn't if it flows from you and doesn't flow from the CEO, you're um, you're setting yourself up for a lot of frustration. So well, one thing I, oh, no, I was going to say, one thing I learned too at Hewlett Packard about that position. So as I mentioned, uh, Pete Peterson was his name at the time was head of personnel. He sat right next to the two, the CEOs in meetings. <laughs> okay. Didn't matter what the meeting was about. Right. It was almost like I used to have a lawyer sitting next to me <laughs> in the Bureau of Land Management, but <laughs> always had a lawyer in a meeting. But anyway, that aside, but they actually, um, he was in every meeting and in the decision making, you know, and, and that was really different, right? <laughs> really different. But that was the point. He had that kind of influence, <laughs> that kind of budget behind him. He could help make decisions. And that's a lot of, you can have a very effective DEI organization if they had a line item budget <laughs> if they were actually involved in the hiring and firing yeah if they had the ear of the ceo but usually those things are lacking and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, limits what they were saying so um you've got an in- initiative now leading from above uh tell us a little bit about that what, okay you know what that means and what you're doing okay uh definitely uh leading from the top is uh our theme for this year we have different themes but um, it's beyond technology now, it's for all CEOs. And essentially we're gonna have a conference October 27th. ASU is the presenting sponsor. It's gonna be at Skysong in Scottsdale. And essentially what we're gonna talk about, uh, I think affects all business people and all businesses. Uh, Last year we focused on tech, this time we're burning it out because everybody's coming back to work (laughs) uh, this year. And what we're going to talk about, which I think is very important, is the changing role of CEOs. CEO in 2023, coming up, it's very different than the CEO role in 2019. So it's different as far as your market base, who you're selling it to, how you're selling it, supply chain, <laughs> how you're selling things. It's uh, changed as far as your workforce, where they are, who they are. <laughs> What they want, employees have become a lot more powerful in the past couple of years as far as uh, setting the rules on what goes and what doesn't go. Yeah, you're. I mean, um, I'm going to stop you in the middle of your list because that is so true, right? We've we've had a demographic since about 1960 where birth rates have gone down and jobs have grown since 1960. So. 60 years of switching the demographics from supply to demand or from demand to supply. So in 1960, employers could make the rules. They could make a job description. They could, I mean, there's a million tiny things that are reflections of the fact that it's employer's market. And over 60 years, we've become an employee's market because employers have to compete for not enough employees. And I think, you know, we all talk about the huge shift that happened in COVID and and the great resignation, but I think that is that 
that is one of the waves in a rising tide. Uh, the tide has been rising for 60 years and one big wave hit, mm -hmm. but that showed how high the water is getting. And it's, it's not the, the COVID wasn't the trend. The COVID was the wave within the trend. Right. Exactly. And uh, you know, the push was on even where your employees are. <laughs> yeah. Um, 2019 uh, and actually it's changed a little bit. 2019, I was talking about where your employees are as far as a global perspective. <laughs> okay, some employees may be in Germany, <laughs> some of them may be in Singapore. <laughs> so you had that already going on that you weren't directly yeah. involved with. You know, remember management by walking around? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a big hit that book was, right? <laughs> and that concept. Well, guess what? <laughs> it's not walking around anymore, right? Yeah, you got to be zooming that, around. You got. Yeah, that doesn't. That's not going to work. So, so I even think back to 2019, I was talking about global change and how that impacts you as a CEO. Now it's like right here, <laughs> domestically, you're not gonna see them either because they don't wanna leave their house or whatever environment that they've yeah. created for themselves right now. So I think all of those issues need to be discussed. That's one thing, CEOs don't get to discuss much among themselves, you're busy. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're busy. Um, it's not the good old days you're used to when I moved here 26 years ago. Everybody used to hang out at Tom's Tavern and, <laughs> you know, drink and, you know, have, you know, you could either be there for happy hour or you could be there at lunch or you could be there in the morning coffee, see everybody. You need to, there's a Congress people would be there. To, <laughs> top yeah. business people would be there. But, okay. <laughs> That's not around anymore. So you really don't get to discuss problems and issues and how to do it. So this is what we want. Uh, we'll, have some, we'll have some case. Well, I always work in a as fact as case studies and you know, my five C's that I talk about, the new five C's, family, employees, clients, government, and the media. And so we'll talk about all, all of those have changed. <laughs> you as a CEO, how you deal with all of those issues as family, who's talking yeah. about that? There was some big changes here <laughs> past yeah. couple of CEOs, Found out they had kids. <laughs> Gee, I didn't know that. <laughs> How old is he? <laughs> but anyway, they found out uh, that, but they found out about the squelch that it wasn't quite what they thought it would be, or was supposed to be. Uh, when you look at issues like uh, employees, to me, is the sort of biggest change, but not the most important one necessarily. You look at clients, um, all online now, right? I don't know. Is Macy's going to be around much longer? I don't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the whole retail thing is turned upside down. The whole hotel industry is turned upside down with Airbnb and just different ways of yeah. taking a vacation. Um, so the whole clientele thing has changed. And then media, <laughs> what happened to them? <laughs> they are, were locked in their closets <laughs> during the pandemic, not going out. Where's the investigative media? You can't hard to be an investigative reporter from your house <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. So uh, media has changed a lot. One, you have a lot more outlets, obviously. Um, a zillion channels and ways you can get podcasts, ways you can get your message out. It's completely changed media in the past couple of years. And then finally, uh, government. <laughs> government has changed, right? Yeah. <laughs> How we deal with them has changed. So we're going to try to 
um, not provide answers to all those, at least bring up the questions, get people talking about that in October at this meeting. I like people to leave what I call the three R's. So that's references, referrals, and resources. Yeah. <laughs> so so we'll if, if people want to learn more about that, that event in October, uh, is there a website or that they can go to? Or yeah, our website is yeah, our website is www.thewbcs.com. But I would say to get on our mailing list for that conference to go ahead and uh, send an email to info at thewbcs.com. And we're developing a list now, people who are interested in being sponsors, interested in coming. Uh, it's gonna be hybrid. So we're gonna have um, you know people on Zoom <laughs> again, but the in-person obviously would be the most exciting part of it. Yeah. And getting to talk and meet face-to-face -face with other CEOs. And it's really aimed at CEOs and business owners. That's who we're aiming at. So I'm very excited about it already. Um, and I think uh, people are already starting to talk about it. So, but so info at the WBCs.com. So you want to be on the waiting list for more information about the conference. And by next month, we'll be putting out a lot of information on it. Great. Super. Great. And that's how people get a hold of you. You're Denise yes. at mm -hmm. the BCS. Yep. yep. At the WBCs.com. I'm sort of a Comic-Con is coming back hey. <laughs> here in Phoenix. I'm a big Comic-Con fan and it's going to be uh, the end of May. First time in three years. Wow. It's been gone. So the WBCs, think of them as superheroes. <laughs> that's our that's our logo, and that's what we try to do for Arizona. Very cool. Well, Denise, thanks a lot hey. for sharing what you're up to. Oh, um, and it's really great to hear your perspective. Um, looking forward to hearing more. Looking forward to seeing your chapter in our Mediocrities book, and and um, okay. maybe we can do something at the October, but you know, between those two, Mediocrities yeah. and leadership. Oh, that's a great idea. I love it. Okay. Cool. Thanks so much for inviting me, Mark. I All appreciate right, it. Denise, okay. thanks a lot. And Take thanks care. everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that sales, marketing, business, leadership, all of it is a lot more like brain surgery than you thought. Thanks and have a high value day. Hey, everybody. Pots in a week. Maybe his current supplier screwed things up, put him up a creek. And I don't know why he wants 4,000 of our gold-plated thingamabobs with the custom unobtainium mojo option. What do you mean the custom unobtainium mojo option cost us more than 20 bucks by itself? Are you sure he knows that? Then why'd he tell me 20 bucks? Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.